Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Kindness Personified, an interview with Brooke Stoddard. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Brooke Stoddard. Brooke Stoddard is a 39-year-old resident of New York City, New York. He is an Ivy League educated director of a digital currency asset management company. In 2009, Brooke began to exhibit the symptoms of a tick disease. By 2010, the severity of his symptoms interfered with every aspect of his life. Brain fog, food sensitivities, and chemical sensitivities became so severe that the career-oriented Brooke found it difficult to sometimes find the word that he wanted to use at the end of a sentence. At its worst, he would occasionally have a conversation with a coworker and realize mid-conversation that he couldn't remember the name of the person he was speaking with. Brooke knew that his symptoms were not normal, and he became obsessed with getting a diagnosis, treatment, and regaining his health. The self-described obsession sent Brooke on a medical journey that included 15 doctors and several misdiagnoses. Eventually, Brooke located the famous Lyme disease doctor, Kenneth Liegner. Dr. Liegner and Brooke formed a medical partnership that resulted in Brooke treating with Dr. Liegner for over six years, primarily with antibiotics, to regain 95% of his health. Finally, despite the strong support of his family, Brooke found Lyme disease to be an isolating experience. To combat that element of the Lyme journey, he and a group of fellow Limeys started a not-for-profit named Generation Lyme. Generation Lyme has become a platform for young Lyme disease patients and their supporters to meet online and in person so they can feel less alone. Hey, Brooke, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're blessed to have you, Brooke, and we'd like you to please introduce yourself to our audience. Can you share with our audience where you live? Absolutely. I live in New York City, in Manhattan, in the uh, Hell's Kitchen neighborhood on the west side. And what do you do for work? I work for a company called Grayscale, which is the largest digital currency asset manager in the world. I also work in finance. I spent about 10 years at Goldman Sachs. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, which is a city of about 150,000 people next to Washington, D.C. And where did you go to college? I went to Princeton. When you graduated from Princeton, did you do any graduate work? I did. Not for several years later, but I eventually went to Wharton for business school. And what was your family like growing up? My family is, they're awesome. I was the oldest of three kids. My mom and dad are both from the Midwest. They grew up in Ohio and they met in graduate school at George Washington University in D.C. And then they settled in Alexandria. So they have lived there for my entire life. And I grew up in Alexandria with two younger sisters, Cassie and Barbara. And I go home a couple times a year. My parents still live in the same house that I moved into when I was 10. Could you share with us, and we ask this question because tick disease is a family disease, what's your relationship status? Sure. I have a boyfriend. He lives in Washington, D.C. His name's Carlos, and uh, we've been dating for about two years. Now, I want to go back to your childhood and ask you, when you were growing up, what were your goals? What were you planning to do during your adult life? Yeah. When I was younger, I was very focused on school. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do for a career, but I knew that I wanted to go to a top university and frankly spent most of my childhood sort of focused on that as a particular goal. But outside of academics, I had some very serious hobbies as well. I was a violinist from about age 10 through the end of college and spent a lot of my youth competing to get into various orchestras in the state of Virginia or the D.C. area and practicing violin in my spare time when I wasn't doing homework. Brooke, when did you first begin to show the symptoms of a tick disease? So I first started to show symptoms in 2009, and I was about 26 then. I didn't really think that I was sick until early 2010, but in 2009, sort of close to the end of 2009, I did notice that I had some kind of red blotches or rashes on my skin, and they were showing up on my arms and on my stomach. And I didn't think much of them, except that they were a little bit itchy, 
And during cold winters, I often had dry skin growing up. So I sort of dismissed it as a dry skin problem. But then in early 2010, I started to experience a range of different symptoms, which I felt were very concerning. And I started to take notes as to what they are. And so as I was thinking about the conversation that we were going to have, I went back to those notes from 2010, and I actually found that there was a particular Saturday, March 27th of 2010, when I woke up and I had a lot of brain fog, something that I'd never experienced before. I had a lot of fatigue. I had a very noticeable heartbeat, which may not have been heart palpitations, but was just a very uncomfortable physically pounding heartbeat that lasted for about seven days and was quite noticeable to me. And then some other strange symptoms like mood swings, the sort of milder bouts of depression or feelings of irritability. And the reason that these were so concerning, particularly the brain fog, is because at the time when I was working at Goldman Sachs, I was very career-oriented. And the brain fog to me felt like it was very difficult to reason. It It was difficult to sometimes find the word that I wanted to use at the end of a sentence. At its worst, I would occasionally have a conversation with a coworker and realize mid-conversation that I couldn't remember the name of the person I was speaking with. And so what, what brain fog sort of meant to me and the reason it was so troubling is because growing up and certainly then later in my professional life, I was very focused on, you know, achieving as much as I could. And I felt that if I was going to have a mental issue, which I was experiencing through brain fog, that really threatened my ability to do well in the workplace. In addition to the developing symptoms impacting you professionally, how did those symptoms affect you personally? I certainly felt that from a personal standpoint, my life was in some ways no longer in my control and was getting a lot harder. So, you know, if I think about my life before these symptoms, I had the opportunity to focus on school and work, and I always felt healthy. Even from a physical standpoint, I'm 135 pounds, I'm 5'8", I'm a relatively skinny guy and was sort of blessed with an efficient metabolism growing up, so I could kind of eat anything I wanted, and I had never experienced any major bouts of sickness when I was younger, and so I just kind of assumed that I was a healthy person. And the health wasn't something that I really needed to worry about much in my childhood life or my adult life. And so the way that these symptoms affected me personally was I realized for the first time in my life that I was going to have to spend a lot of time addressing my health, figuring out why I was experiencing these symptoms, probably trying to come up with a diagnosis for whatever I was going through, and that that was actually going to distract me from the other things that I wanted to do in my life, either personally or uh, through work. Brooke, how did your developing symptoms impact the people who you loved? Meaning, what weren't you able to do for the people who you loved, and what impact was this having on those people? Well, you know, it's pretty interesting. We talked about my family a little bit earlier in the conversation, and I've always had a, a wonderful relationship with all of my family members. But by the time I started experiencing these symptoms, our relationship got even stronger and closer. And I think I needed my family even more then than I had in in earlier years. And so the way this kind of manifest was, particularly with my mom, who I've always had a close, loving relationship with, when, when I started to experience these symptoms and felt really threatened by them, the first person that I really kind of vented to was my mom. And I started calling her every day after I left work. And she did such a great job in just kind of listening to what was going on. Neither of us knew what was wrong with me or how to find a solution. But our relationship strengthened because she allowed me to, you know, kind of talk to her about what I was going through. 
and she was very empathetic and supportive and reminded me that eventually I would get through it. Rick, what impact did your developing symptoms have on your social relationships, your friends and your romantic relationships? Yeah. So I would say, you know, growing up, I was slightly shy and introverted, but I have always found it very easy to get along with all different types of people. And I love that. And so, you know, socially in college and after college and, and even in, you know, before college, I always had a lot of different friends from different social circles. And on weekends, I like to hang out with them. Occasionally after work, I like to have dinner with them. But when I started to experience these symptoms in 2010, I realized that I just didn't have energy to go see my friends anymore. And, you know, we talked a little about fatigue. Fatigue for me in early 2010 meant that I basically needed to expend all of my energy to get through a five-day work week. And then I get home on Friday and I did not want to see any of my friends because that would sap more energy from me. And so I would kind of just like sit on my couch watching Netflix all weekend just to regain enough energy to go back to work on Monday and kind of do it all over again. And so what was once, I think, a kind of robust social life, which, you know, certainly added to my degree of happiness in life, became a rather like unimpressive social life because I just didn't have the energy to hang out with my friends and go to see movies with them or go to restaurants. And so it was definitely like a, a damper on my, on my social situation. What impact did your developing symptoms have on your romantic relationships? In 2010, I was single and recently gotten out of an excellent relationship with someone who's still one of my best friends. And so from 2010, actually, all the way until many years later, I was, I was single. And in some ways, I was very comfortable with that because it felt like I just didn't have time to date. And I didn't really want to date. I wanted to focus on my health and I wanted to focus on work. And so for years, I just kind of prioritized work and health over my social life and over trying to develop romantic relationships. And I think that worked for a while. But as I recognized that Lyme disease might be a chronic condition and something that I might deal with for many, many years. Eventually, I got to a point where I wanted to have romantic relationships despite of my symptom set and condition. And then fast forward a few years to when I was in business school, I was lucky to meet Carlos and we started dating. So Brooke, back in 2009 and early 2010, when you first started getting these early symptoms of Lyme disease, what doctors did you see? So in 2009, I saw a primary physician in New York City, and he was a great guy. Well, actually, I would say early 2010, when I really started to experience brain fog and some of these very troubling symptoms, he was the first person that I went to see. We probably saw each other two, maybe three times in a month. And I think it would be natural to go to a primary physician you know, as a first stop when you're experiencing a health problem. And the conversations that we had were such that I explained all my symptoms. I was very troubled by them. We ran a whole host of standard blood labs. Uh, we ran an EKG because I was complaining about my rapid heartbeat. And frankly, nothing irregular showed up on the blood labs and nothing irregular showed up from an EKG perspective either. And so the doctor, unfortunately, couldn't give me a diagnosis, um, which was distressing. And he started to refer me to other specialists who could sort of explore some of the other symptoms that I was dealing with. So, for example, I ended up seeing, I would say, 10 to 15 doctors before I was eventually diagnosed with Lyme disease. But at this period of time in 2010, uh, my primary physician would do things like refer me to a dermatologist because I would complain about, you know, red rashes on my skin, or he would send me to a, a neurologist because I was complaining about brain fog. We went to a gastroenterologist to talk about some of the food sensitivities 
that I started to experience and became one of my worst symptoms of Lyme disease. And as I saw all of these doctors, there were a couple of things that I learned. One was no one really had a diagnosis that I could understand that would explain all of my different symptoms. And for the first time, I realized that as wonderful as these doctors were, they just didn't have all of the answers. And it was kind of an important lesson for me in life that I had to learn how to advocate for myself. And as doctors were telling me that I looked healthy and that my lab tests looked totally fine, I had to learn how to push back and say, actually, I'm not healthy. And this symptom set that I'm dealing with is really bizarre and abnormal. And we need to keep thinking about this until we come to a diagnosis that makes sense. And I start to treat it in a way that makes me feel better. So Brooke, these specialists that you were referred to by your primary care physician, did any of them come up with any diagnosis or were they all sort of puzzled by your wide variety of symptoms? I would say it was more of the latter. There weren't any kind of egregious misdiagnoses along the way, but the doctors I saw were all very good natured and they certainly tried. So for example, you know, I remember I saw a, uh, we can sort of get into this in, in more depth, but one of the major symptoms of Lyme disease I experienced were a hypersensitivity to strong, often scented chemicals. And to address that, my primary physician sent me to a, a dermatologist to do a series of allergy tests. And the dermatologist kind of diagnosed me with something called a delayed type hypersensitivity hypersensitivity to a variety of chemicals that are commonly encountered. And so while that might not sound like a, you know, a definitive diagnosis, it was his way of trying to explain a chemical sensitivity problem that I had developed over time. Brooke, how did the doctors who you were treating with respond to you pushing back when they told you you were essentially fine and you were telling them you were not fine, that you were sick? You know, frankly, a lot of the doctors just told me they didn't know what was going on. And that was almost the worst thing to hear because it was so obvious to me and to my family and friends because I was telling them about my symptoms constantly that there was something really awful going on in my body. And the fact that no doctor could really explain it didn't really feel right to me. And it, it was something that I think taught me about the limits of physician knowledge and the, the medical system that, you know, there are people who don't feel healthy and sometimes it's very difficult for doctors to explain why that is. So, you know, I would constantly come into doctor's offices with stacks of, you know, symptom journals or, you know, lab tests that I had done with previous doctors. And I, you know, did my very best to be as prepared as I could for any of these doctor's appointments and to explain the wide range of symptoms that I was dealing with essentially 24-7. And a lot of doctors just said, you know, we're really like, this, this sounds distressing, but we just don't know what's going on. And, you know, certainly, as I think a lot of Lyme disease patients can relate to, there were one or two doctors who said I was in perfect health. And, um, and that's, I think, probably the last thing that anyone who is experiencing Lyme disease symptoms really wants to hear. But it's something that I think happens to a lot of those people. Brooke, what role did the strong support system that you had from your family and your friends in giving you the confidence you needed to push back against a medical community that was at times telling you you were the picture of health? My friends and my family were just extremely important during this part of my life. And I would, I would loop into that category my coworkers as well, because while at first I was fearful of explaining to my boss and my colleagues at the office that I had these terrible symptoms that, you know, certainly in their eyes might mean that I couldn't be a, a perfect employee, but I found that all these people 
really had my back. They encouraged me to keep seeing doctors. They encouraged me to keep talking about it. And what was really interesting about this process is the more that I explained my symptom set, not only to doctors, but to people in my personal life, the closer I got to meeting other Lyme disease patients who would ultimately kind of explain to me that they thought I had Lyme disease and might want to explore that diagnosis in a way that I hadn't previously. Brooke, I think you just hit on a really important point in the Lyme community that many Lyme patients, even before they're diagnosed and once they're diagnosed, don't want to speak about their symptoms because they feel like they're this rare sort of odd person in the community, but they're really not. And if they modeled off of you and actually spoke about their symptoms, they potentially could have gotten to a diagnosis quicker by discussing their symptoms with others who may or may not have had or been exposed to somebody with Lyme disease. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that it was very difficult for me in 2010 to figure out who I could talk to about this condition. But the more that I talked about it, the more I learned what diagnoses probably would not explain my symptom set. And the closer I got to meeting people who would understand my symptom set as potentially being caused by Lyme. And, you know, I can remember specifically being, being very scared of talking to my manager at Goldman Sachs about this brain fog issue that I had because I was working in finance. And so I needed to be good at math and good at data analysis and something like brain fog, which made my sense of reasoning and cognition more difficult, you know, could be seen by someone like a manager as a risk. But I found that he was actually extremely supportive in helping me to, you know, just think about ways that I might continue to explore solutions in the medical system. He was very supportive in sort of creating work conditions that would help me to flourish despite this difficult symptom. And he totally supported me as I spent months and then eventually years trying to figure out what was wrong. So Brooke, let's do a deeper dive into your food sensitivity. So you really never had any food sensitivities up until you started to become symptomatic of Lyme disease. What type of food allergies did you have and how did they make you feel? Yeah, so these were really interesting. And if I think about my toughest Lyme disease symptoms, I would say that they were brain fog, food sensitivities, and chemical sensitivities. So I'm glad you asked about this. The food sensitivities started in early 2010, which was the time when I experienced brain fog for the first time. And what food sensitivities meant to me were when I ate carbohydrate-heavy foods or sort of like complicated carbohydrates, I experienced my other symptoms getting worse. And to sort of be very specific about this, if I were to eat bread or white rice or starchy foods like potatoes or sweet foods like strawberries, let alone coffee, alcohol, cookies, candy, and cake, when I would digest a lot of these foods, I would experience a worsening of my other symptoms like brain fog, like mood swings, like fatigue. And this felt so unusual because as a kid, I could essentially eat what I wanted and feel normal. But this was very different. Now I could eat what I wanted and feel worse. And so I didn't really know what to do except to try to create some data around this issue. And so I started keeping a daily food journal where I would just track what I ate for breakfast and lunch and dinner. And what I realized over time was pretty surprising to me. But as I ate those, you know, sort of delicious, often carb-heavy foods, I would typically experience a worsening of my symptoms. And so as a way to kind of combat that and minimize my symptoms, over time, I removed a lot of those particularly carb-heavy foods from my diet. And then really for about two to three years, just ate plain meats like chicken or fish, 
vegetables like cauliflower and broccoli, eggs, almonds, and green apples. And it's not because I necessarily wanted to have a diet that was that restrictive, but I did want to feel as healthy as possible. I did want to continue to work. And I recognized that if I kept my diet as strict and sort of limited to those five or six basic foods, that I could eat as much of them as I wanted and feel full and have energy, but that they didn't exacerbate the rest of my symptom set. So Brooke, I'd also like to learn more about your sensitivity to smells. That seemed to be your third most prominent symptom. So can you talk in more detail about your chemical sensitivities? Yeah, and this is something that even today I still struggle with. And I'm still trying to figure out scientifically. But chemical sensitivities for me didn't start in 2010. They actually started, I would say, in 2011 or 2012. For some reason, they were not my first symptom. But around 2011 or 2012, I started to realize that if I was around very strong smelling chemicals, that my body would have a type of allergic reaction. And I think I would try to explain this to people based on the idea that there are some people who get a headache when they're around perfume or when they're pumping gas at the gas station. And for me, I had some degree of this problem, but it was much more severe. So an example of how this would manifest would be, I would be at the office, I'd be in a meeting in a boardroom, and if I was sitting next to someone who had a strong perfume or an aftershave or maybe used a scented shampoo or some sort of hair product, and if I could smell any of those things, then I would experience a worsening of my other symptoms. So all of a sudden, I would feel an onset of brain fog. I would become more tired. I would, you know, have more of these mood swings. And similar to how I approached foods, eliminating a lot of foods that I couldn't tolerate, I started to reconstruct my life around avoiding chemicals that I couldn't tolerate. And unfortunately, this got to be very, very difficult. So it wasn't just trying to, let's say, not sit next to someone who had used a scented hair product, but I actually found that there are a lot of articles of clothing that I couldn't even wear. And these were typically clothes that had some sort of chemical in them. So, you know, as, as a guy, I was wearing suits occasionally to work that are dry clean only and often have some sort of chemical in them to make them less wrinkly. Um, I was also wearing, you know, button down shirts that were non-iron that are also coated in a chemical that, that makes them, you know, really flat. So you don't have to iron out the wrinkles. And it turned out that whatever chemicals were in these articles of clothing, I just couldn't tolerate. So same story. I would try to wear a suit to work or, you know, a normal button down shirt that I've been wearing for years. And I would get more brain fog, more fatigue, more of all of my other symptoms. And so what I ended up doing for a couple of years was just avoiding articles of clothing, products with chemicals that I couldn't tolerate, and sometimes furniture too. And to give you kind of two examples of how this played out in my life, when I went to business school, I actually wore the same t-shirt almost every day of business school because I just didn't want to take the risk of trying on new articles of clothing and maybe having to run back home from class in order to put on an article of clothing that I wasn't going to be sensitive to. And it's this t-shirt that I love. It says Virginia's for runners on it. All of my friends kind of identify me by this t-shirt. And it was just something that I knew would not create other symptoms for me. And so I, I relied on it as a way to um, kind of manage a very difficult symptom set that, you know, had come about based on chemical sensitivities. So Brooke, over this four-year period of your illness before you got diagnosed, I guess from the time you were 26 up until you were 30, what eventually triggered your diagnosis with Lyme disease when you were 30 years old? 
So this was actually a really interesting story. And the thing that triggered it is I had gone to 10 to 15 doctors and run countless tests. I had also moved from New York to India, and then I moved back to the United States to go to business school. And so I was living my life and doing different things in my educational and career life while managing a complicated set of symptoms. But ultimately, what actually happened in terms of my getting closer to a Lyme disease diagnosis is I had finished a year of business school. I went back to Goldman Sachs for a summer internship And another of the summer interns who had had Lyme disease previously was listening to me tell this story, just like I'm telling it to both of you. And he said, I think you might have Lyme disease. And the reason I think that is because I previously had Lyme disease and I experienced a lot of those same symptoms. And I think my initial reaction was, I don't think this is Lyme disease. And I actually thought that I knew some things about Lyme disease. In fact, as a kid, I was a Boy Scout. I eventually became an Eagle Scout. And so I did a lot of camping. And I knew what ticks were. I knew how to check for them. I was always aware of Lyme disease when I was younger. But I never considered that Lyme disease could have caused all the symptoms that I'd been dealing with for years. So, you know, I owe a lot to this particular guy named Chad, because he was really the first person in my life who suggested that I might have Lyme disease. When he made the suggestion to you, did you follow up with a doctor for a Lyme test or how did it proceed to ultimately end up in your Lyme diagnosis? I think the first thing I did was I went home and I Googled Lyme disease and I read about all of the symptoms that were possibly caused by Lyme disease. And I remember having this sense of joy in a way because this felt like a potential diagnosis to explain the very difficult health situation that I've been in for a couple of years. And the more I looked into the Lyme diagnosis, the more I started to believe that that might be right. In the next couple of months, a couple of things happened. I started to go to Lyme disease specialists, LLMDs, in New York City, then eventually north of New York City. And we really started to drill down into Lyme disease tests to determine if I potentially had Lyme disease. And of course, we spent hours talking about my symptom set to sort of create a a clinical and lab-based pile of evidence that might suggest Lyme disease was what I was experiencing. And the closer I got to a Lyme disease diagnosis, the happier I got because I could finally put a name to the thing that I had been struggling with for so long. Did you eventually get a blood test? I did Western blot tests at Stony Brook, at Igenix. I did an ELISA test at Stony Brook. And so, you know, ultimately the conclusion that we came to, uh, my doctor and I came to kind of cautiously over time was that Lyme disease was probably the right diagnosis and that I had potential babesiosis as a co-infection. And once you and your Lyme litter doctor identified this, that you had Lyme and potentially one or many co-infections, what was the treatment course that you received? Sure. So, you know, the the LLMD that I was seeing was uh, Kenneth Liegner in Pauling, New York. And one thing that I loved about Dr. Liegner is he was so scientific and data-driven. And we just had sort of piles of paperwork and tests that we did to rule out a lot of diagnoses, but get closer to Lyme disease and babesiosis being the potential diagnoses. And, you know, in this same line of thinking, we had a conversation about potentially treating my condition as Lyme disease and babesiosis. You know, as we talked about this, it made sense, I think, for me to at first try a kind of collection of oral antibiotics. And so the first thing that we tried was doxycycline to attack the live form of Borrelia burgdorferi. And we also added uh, malarone or atavaquan proganol because of the potential that I might have babesiosis. And then later on, we added a third drug called tinidazole, which is an antifungal. And we think that it kills the cystic form of Lyme disease. So 
for actually quite a long time, I took this cocktail of antibiotics. And while it wasn't easy at first, and in fact, I ended up taking a year off from school to sort of focus on this initial treatment, and I experienced Herxheimer reactions that were rather uncomfortable. At the same time, I also experienced a drastic diminishing of my symptom set almost as soon as I started taking this group of antibiotics. And that felt promising because I finally had some relief from the brain fog and fatigue and other symptoms. Brooke, why did you and your doctor take such a cautious approach to your diagnosis of Lyme disease? I think that, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world in which Lyme disease diagnoses are very difficult. The blood tests that would establish a Lyme disease diagnosis are known to be highly inaccurate in many cases. And, you know, Dr. Liegner has been treating Lyme disease patients for 30 years. And I think the last thing that he wants to do is treat someone for Lyme disease who doesn't have Lyme disease. And so as we kind of developed this doctor-patient relationship, I really appreciated that he moved slowly and that he came to conclusions only based on a lot of, you know, lab testing and sort of clinical information of my symptom set over time. And then ultimately, he asked me what I wanted to do. He never pushed a treatment plan on me. But together, we decided that it might be worth trying antibiotics as a way to treat Lyme disease. And while antibiotics don't work for everybody, fortunately, they work very well for me. Brooke, you took a variety of different Lyme tests. I'm wondering why you took so many tests and what impact did the varying results have on your decision to treat the way you did? You know, I think, I think we did so many tests because we wanted to be as right as we could. I think that we wanted to we wanted to rule out potential diagnoses that might be wrong. And one thing that was kind of interesting in my situation is earlier in my life, when I was 16, I'd actually gotten a Lyme disease vaccine called Lymerix. And Lymerix was eventually pulled from the market. And it's unclear how effective or ineffective it was at the time that people were getting it. But there has been some research to suggest that if someone like me got the Lymerix vaccine, that that could actually cause some antibodies to show up in in my bloodstream that are also antibodies that Western blot tests look for. And so I think specific to my case, one of the reasons that Dr. Liegner and I ran so many tests is because we wanted to be able to differentiate between any antibodies that might show up as a result of this earlier Lymerix vaccine that I'd gotten and antibodies that were showing up because I had contracted Lyme disease years prior. Brooke, did you take any detox precautions while you were getting this antibiotic treatment? Yeah, a couple of things. I would say, you know, even before I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, Besides restricting my diet and avoiding strong chemicals, one thing that I did to detox was I started running. And, you know, I talked to a lot of Lyme disease patients around the country, and I I recognize that some people aren't able to exercise because they might have joint pain or muscle pain. But fortunately, you know, I was able to start running around 2010 when I developed these distressing symptoms. And the reason I mentioned running is because for me, running was all about detoxing. I started running two miles a day on the treadmill. And the way I did it was just by wearing a couple layers of clothing to kind of induce sweating. And I found that sweating really reduced my symptom set. And so that was kind of the first thing that I ever did to, to detox. Brooke, do you think the universe was telling you that running was going to be a helpful element of your treatment journey when you were wearing a Virginia is for runners shirt every day during graduate school? <laughs> I absolutely would agree with that. And I think that, you know, in, if I'm lucky enough to get to a world in which I don't have Lyme disease, then I would like to continue running because I think it's just good for my health. Brooke, did you do any other things or are you doing anything today to help detox like infrared sauna potentially? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I can't remember exactly when I started doing this. Probably it was about the time that I got my Lyme disease diagnosis six years ago. But every single day I go to a dry sauna and I do that for the same reason that I became a runner. It is that when I go to the sauna for about 25 minutes a day and I literally sit there and I sweat, afterwards I feel a lot better. So any symptoms that have kind of like cropped up during the day, especially, you know, under stress, they go away after I go to the sauna. So in fact, after after we finish this discussion today, I'm going to go to the gym and sit in the sauna for 25 minutes and then I'll uh, probably feel the best that I'll feel all day. I have a ton of friends who swear by infrared saunas, and I believe that they're very effective. For me, I've actually never tried one, but the type of sauna that I go to is literally just a dry sauna. I go to it at a gym in Manhattan. The sauna is quite hot. It's about 160 or 170 degrees, and I just sit there. I read the newspaper and kind of sweat it out, and then I I leave and come back the next day. So Brooke, you've been diagnosed now and on treatment for about six years, and you've been on this combination therapy of drugs for almost that entire six-year window, but you've recently started something new with your Lyme Litter doctor. Can you talk to us more about what new therapy you've recently introduced into your treatment protocol? About two or three months ago, I started taking disulfiram at the advice of Dr. Liegner. And by advice, I mean he has published research of three of his patients who have taken disulfiram. And so you can go online and see sort of what effect that has had on three of his patients. And Dr. Liegner, over the past year or two, has become interested in disulfiram as a potential treatment protocol for people with Lyme disease. And he started to talk to me about it maybe nine months before I agreed to give it a shot. And the more I listened to him and the more I read about disulfiram, the more curious I got about it. And, you know, at this point, there are researchers around the country talking about disulfiram. I'm in a Facebook group of almost 5,000 people who only talk about Lyme disease and disulfiram. But the reason that I started to try it is because I would say for probably two years, as I've been on this other cocktail of antibiotics, I've done really well, and I've been telling everyone in my life that I'm about 95% better. And that's great. It feels very good. But I also felt that I had plateaued. And in order to get from 95% better to you know closer to 100%, I realized that I needed to kind of be open to new treatment protocols once again. And this was about the time that Dr. Liegner was starting to tell me about research around disulfiram. So once I got comfortable with giving it a try, Dr. Liegner and I came up with a very specific treatment protocol, a plan by which I would take small amounts of disulfiram. And I have to say, without getting too excited about this, the results were astounding. So as soon as I took it, I, one, experienced a type of Herx that I'd almost become unfamiliar with. It was pretty difficult, actually, but suggested to me that disulfiram was actually killing part of the Lyme disease infection that was kind of like deep inside my body and seemed to be quite effective at getting rid of that. And then I realized that like any remaining brain fog that I was experiencing was really getting stripped away. And for me, this ended up being very exciting because I felt like I could think and sort of absorb information more clearly than I'd been able to in uh, about nine years. And how long have you been on disulfiram for? I would say three months, two to three months. I take very small doses of it. I can only handle it once a week. I take it on the weekend and, you know, I'll just go slow. But I think in my personal situation, it's been very helpful. And so I'm continuing to give it a shot. And you mentioned you only take it once a week at a very small dose. I've read some things about disulfiram and, you know, different practitioners prescribe a wide variety of dosages. So do you know what dosage you're on? Yeah, right now I'm starting very slow. So I take either 67 and a half milligrams or 125 milligrams 
once a week on Friday nights. And Brooke, would you say that you are now a little over 95% better with the addition of disulfiram over the past two to three months? Honestly, I would. I would say I'm around 96 or 97. So Brooke, can you now share with our listeners how this Lyme disease journey has been positive in your life's journey? What kinds of things are different for you now that you do not believe you would have accomplished had you not gone on this Lyme disease journey? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. I think about this a lot. I would say a couple of things. First of all, I was not conscious of the importance of health until I got Lyme disease. And then I entered a period of my life when I was thinking about my health and my symptom set really every minute or every five minutes. And that was a new experience for me that taught me how important it is to try to be healthy and when we are healthy to be very, very grateful for that. You know, another thing that I learned is I became very aware of the number of people who struggle with some sort of health condition. Could be Lyme disease, it could be anything else. And in some cases, those health conditions have names and sometimes they don't or might be sort of emerging illnesses or kind of vague illnesses. And I became very empathetic to people like that. So I not only love talking to Lyme disease patients whenever they want to vent about their symptoms or to talk about different potential treatment protocols, but I also just, I really listen carefully when anyone is talking about some sort of health problem that they're experiencing because I feel like I understand what that's like and how difficult and sometimes confusing that that can be. Now, Brooke, you've also begun an effort to reach out to other Lyme patients so that you can create a community together. Can you share with our listeners what motivated you to reach out to other folks in the Lyme community? Yeah, you know, I think that answers the previous question, too. One thing that I certainly have really wanted to do since having my own experience with Lyme disease is to do some nonprofit work to help other people who have Lyme disease as well. And so what I ended up doing was co-founding a nonprofit called Generation Lyme. It's actually part of an existing nonprofit called Project Lyme, which raises awareness for Lyme disease. And Generation Lyme specifically is a community of Lyme disease patients and their supporters who are young. So as I experienced, you know, years of trying to figure out what was wrong with me and trying to get better, I found that process often to be not just confusing, but very lonely. And so the reason I created Generation Lyme with five of my friends who also have Lyme disease is to create a community where people who have Lyme disease can come together and feel less alone as they're going through their own personal health journeys. And because we live in a digital world, a place where they meet us is on Instagram. We tell stories of Lyme disease patients on our Instagram account, which is at generation underscore Lyme. And we also do in-person meetups around the country in uh, New York, New Jersey, Denver, and San Francisco. Because although, you know, sometimes when you have Lyme disease, you just want to stay at home and kind of rest. We also think it's important to set up places around the country and any city or town where people can come together and in real life meet other people going through the same health journey. And if there are folks who are listening to our podcast that want to start a meetup in their community, what kind of resources and support can you offer to them? Yeah, absolutely. So anyone who wants to get in touch should just go to our Instagram account and, you know, DM the account. And usually I'm the person who responds to that. So I'm happy to chat with anyone who would be interested in hosting a Generation Line meetup in their town or city around the country. And we try to make it as easy as possible for that to happen. We do that in a couple of ways. One, we can provide a script for the meetup, which is an agenda and how you know we might run the meetup. We would love to be as helpful as possible to any meetup organizer to sort of make that happen for members of his or her own community. We're happy to, you know, get on the phone or just have a conversation by email to basically provide any resources that that person would would need. And then, of course, on the marketing front, we would, 
use our Instagram account to kind of advertise to other people who are following us that a meetup is happening in, in your respective community and we'd love for people to attend. Brooke, I have one last question for you. We here at Tick Boot Camp have come to the conclusion that the real experts in the Lyme and Tick Disease community are the people whose lives have been changed by an experience like yours. And a number of these folks, like you, have begun to reach out and to try to help folks overcome the challenges and in many cases avoid the challenges that come along with a tick bite. So if I called you tomorrow and I said to you, Brooke, I found a tick biting me, what advice would you give to me so that I can avoid having the experience that you and so many Lyme's have had? Yeah, and believe it or not, I actually get this question a lot from people you wouldn't expect, some friends of mine from childhood and some co-workers today in my adult life. So I think it's an important question. You know, I think the most important first thing is to remove the tick. And that is typically done with fine pointed tweezers. You want to grab the tick as close to, you know, where it's biting you as possible. So you really get the head of the tick and the teeth of the tick out of your body. And then a couple of other steps are very important too. I would save the tick. I would, you know, mark where the tick bite may have occurred. I would start to create evidence of the tick bite by taking pictures of where that bite occurred, probably something to do every day. Then you want to send the tick in for testing at a lab that can confirm any kind of tick diseases that the tick might have contracted into the person and see a doctor right away, preferably an LLMD, but at least you got to start with some doctor and then get tested for tick diseases, both Lyme disease and co-infections. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Brooke Stoddard. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Brooke Stoddard and his tick disease journey, please visit Generation Lime Instagram at generation underscore Lime. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you will see at the bottom of this post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests like Brooke Stoddard on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to review the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your past comments on our podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.